Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. On September 14, 1960, Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass formed a production company that would give birth to some of the most culturally significant characters of the 20th century. Their work was almost exclusively animated, taking well-known children's books and songs and adapting them for the American television screen. They hired Mari Laws as their lead musical director, Romeo Muller as their primary scriptwriter. They outsourced most of their animation work to Japan, commissioned two companies that eventually produced later cartoons like Dragon Ball Z, Thundercats, the Smurfs, and the Transformers. But in the early 1960s, the technology consisted of claymation or stop-motion animation before moving to smoother cell animation by the end of the decade. Rankin, Bass, Laws, Muller, and their Japanese partners gave us television specials such as The Adventures of Pinocchio, Davy and Goliath, The Little Drummer Boy, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Here Comes Peter Cottontail, the first animated version of The Hobbit, and as you learned last week, Frosty the Snowman. And of course, today, the franchise itself. 52 minutes of weird, quirky, spastically moving characters in stop-motion glory, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. After last week's talk about Frosty the Snowman, I was told by multiple people that you can still watch Frosty this year on your local CBS affiliate. Saturday evening, this coming Saturday, December 16th at 8 p.m. Central Time. Put it on your calendar. I'll give you a moment with your phone. But if you tune in an hour earlier, there, for the 59th year in a row, you will watch Rudolph once again. As no American celebration of Christmas would be complete without this, quote, tale of a shy reindeer whose Christmas spirit is dampened because his shiny nose has made him the laughingstock of all of Christmasville. Now, to my uninformed surprise, I thought Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was universally beloved. He may not be your favorite animated character. The show may not whip you up into a holiday frenzy. But all in all, I thought Rudolph's underdog story endeared him to everyone. Not so. There is a whole collection of people and a few writers who are adamant in their dislike of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They loathe 
this little reindeer and his shiny nose. They refuse to show it to their children. They even call for him to be removed from American television. Yes, you heard that right. There is a movement to have Rudolph canceled. Now, there are a few reasons for this I have discovered this week. One, it's scary. The abominable snowman in particular. And I will give critics this. That dude is spooky as hell. And I used to hide behind a blanket when he made his appearance for the first time, climbing up over those plywood mountains. And my sister shared with me this week that she actually might have PTSD from this one single character. Two, critics say it's depressing. One critic wrote, quote, It's 50 minutes of Christmas-crushing despair, producing nothing but fretful anxiety. That point is related to the last criticism, number three. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer promotes bullying, objectors say. Not Rudolph himself, but those around him. The star of the show is so pulverized by the animosity of others, so ostracized and picked on, it drives him away. All the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. And it's true, so much so that they wouldn't let poor Rudolph play or join in their reindeer games. Now, at the risk of being misunderstood, I'm going to meet this criticism head on today. The story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is scary, agreed. At times, it is depressing and anxiety-inducing, agreed. And yes, it is chock-full of bullying, name-calling, ostracizing, and not just by the children. The adults get in on the action, too. Even old St. Nick takes a far too passive position in the midst of all this when his sheer paternal force could have squashed most of it. But guess what? The world is scary. The world is depressing. The world is anxiety-inducing. The world is chock-full of bullying and name-calling and ostracizing and not just by children. The adults get in on the action too. And the authorities and systems in place that could and should squash injustice and inequality are far too often passive in the face of it. And many times it's actually the authorities and the systems that actually sustain injustice and inequality. The story of Rudolph should be renamed. It should be Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reality. Because the story being told is how the world really is. And I have to offer it to Rankin and Bass, Laws and Muller, for not trying to prove anything different than that. Anyone, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a grandparent, if you're a pastor, and you try to hide the stark meanness of the world from children and youngsters, you are not doing those children any favors. I mean, if what happens on a Christmas special offends you, I have to ask, have you ever seen children play on a playground? Have you ever heard the barbs shared between middle school aged girls in the cafeteria? Have you ever heard the trash talking that happens on the field, in the locker room, or on a school bus? To be in this world is to be subjected to criticism, bullying, name calling, to be tormented by the powers that be. And if you are a little different by looks 
or by choice or by emotional makeup or orientation, then the load you must bear will be even heavier. We would all be better served if we stopped denying that this was the case. Yes, we all need safe space. We all need affirmation and inclusion. We should all be free to be our individual and God-made selves, but being soft or naive about it will not make it so. People, this takes courage. This will require teaching children and acquiring for ourselves the skills to deal with bullies and blowhards and arrogant men and mean girls. For some of us, we identified with Rudolph. We saw ourselves in him because we were the ones being picked on. We were the ones being kicked around emotionally and physically. We were the laughingstocks. And if you've ever been on the sharp end of the bullying stick, or had, in my case, Ken Howard get on the school bus every morning and thump you on the top of the head with his class ring and say, scoot over four eyes for the 350th day in a row, there is no way in a world that you would ever allow somebody like Rudolph to be removed from the screen. Borrowing from Bob Dylan's Chimes of Freedom, incidentally, also released in 1964. See Rudolph as the one tolling for the refugees on the unarmed road of flight, for each and every underdog soldier in the night, tolling for the luckless, the abandoned, the forsaked, tolling for the outcast burning constantly at stake, tolling for the aching ones whose wounds cannot be nursed, for the countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones, and worse, for every hung up person in the whole wide universe. Rudolph is the patron saint of the oddball, the eccentric, the outsider, and the outlier, the dissident, the nonconformist, the weak, and the misunderstood, and yes, for the misfit. And only those who have never felt the lonely, broken-hearted, unloved rejection of being a misfit with no real place to stand or call home could ever criticize the story of reality. But before I get to Rudolph's friends on the island of misfit toys, I return to today's gospel reading. The Magnificat of Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, my soul magnifies the Lord, thus the name. She didn't write the song, but it is one she would have known well in the first century. It is a song of liberation. It is a song of freedom. It is the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, who had been unable to bear a child for many years, finally conceives and gives birth to Samuel, whom she dedicated to the Lord. He is the first great Old Testament prophet and the link between the days of Moses and the days of King David. Hannah composes and sings a beautiful song that was then sung for generations and generations on end and sung to this day in Jewish communities. Mary, in her now miraculous situation, borrows most of Hannah's lyrics and sings it from the bottom of her heart. It is all joy. It is all glory. It is all praise. And we like that part. But it is also about justice. It is about setting things right. It is about leveling the playing field. Did you 
hear it, especially the second half of the song. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. Does Mary sound like a communist to you? She wasn't, but she certainly wasn't a capitalist either. Does she sound like an anarchist? She wasn't, but she is an evangelist. She is preaching the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. Her son would upset all that is, crashing the status quo, cutting cables, overturning tables, humbling the bullies, and elevating the misfits and the forgotten and the least of these. Liberation and rescue were at hand, especially for the misfits. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of this text, The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is the most passionate, the most revolutionary. For God comes to the humble. Mary herself, the wife of a carpenter, we may say, the poor working man's wife, unnoticed, insignificant. But she is significant to God and appointed to be the mother of the Savior of the world, not because of some remarkable human trait, not because of great piety, not because of her modesty, not because of any particular virtue, but only because God's gracious will is to love the humble and the lowly, the insignificant. God is not ashamed to be with those of humble state. He loves the lost, the forgotten, the outcast, the weak, and the broken. God coming into the world seeks out not the high and mighty, but the lowly, that we might see the glory and the power of God making the down and out great. No, this is not the gentle, dreamy Mary that we so often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, enthusiastic Mary singing a strong, uncompromising song of revolution. So it should come as no surprise that when Jesus returned to Nazareth about 30 years after Mary sang this song and he preaches his first sermon, he takes as his text the prophet Isaiah and says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And when Jesus says those words, he sounds a whole lot like his mother because she had already sung this song. Back to Rudolph. His is the mythological story of one who must leave home in order to find home. The bullying is so strong in his father, Donner, by the way, so unrelenting and Santa himself so condescending that poor Rudolph runs away. And as he leaves, he sings a little song. Why am I such a misfit? I am not just a nitwit. Just because my nose glows, why don't I fit in? He finds a misfit partner along the way, 
an elf named Hermie. Hermie doesn't want to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. <laughs> to which the foreman elf says, you'll never fit in. Now you come to practice and learn how to wiggle your ears and chuckle warmly and go hee-hee and ho-ho and important stuff like that. A dentist, good grief. This puts Hermie into the North Pole wilderness as well. And he and Rudolph decide to be independent together. And Rudolph says, I'll be that, whatever that means. And off they go. And they're singing a song as they go. We may be different from the rest, but who decides the test of what is really best? We're a couple of misfits, just a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. They land by chance on the shores of the island of misfit toys. And I took some time this week to revisit these toys, and I didn't find too much wrong with any of them. Number one, there's a scooter for Jimmy. That's all they say. Jimmy didn't want him? I don't know, but he's adorable. There's an airplane, and I don't know if he can fly or not, but he's there. There's a dolly for Sue. She seems completely suitable for finding a home, though Rankin and Bass said that she suffered from lowest self-esteem. Well, heck yeah, she's trapped on an island, the only female in the whole bunch. There's Charlie in the box. He's a little eccentric, but functions as he should. There's a cowboy that rides an ostrich, a bird that can swim, a train with square wheels, a little boat that has a hard time staying afloat, a water gun that shoots jelly, which is pretty cool if you ask me. And there's this elephant here with pink polka dots. I mean, there's nothing scary about that. I mean, could have been a crimson elephant. <laughs> then Yukon Cornelius should have buried his little axe in its head and drowned him in the Arctic Sea. But Because uh, a crimson ele elephant would be a, an abomination. Not a white elephant with a rash. I mean, he probably just needs a little lidocaine or something. All these playthings are different, but they aren't bad. They aren't wrong. They just are. And all they want is what we all want, a chance. A chance to be loved, a chance to belong, a chance to be themselves, a chance to thrive in spite of their misfittings and their misgivings, a chance to be a part of this great reversal where the down and out are no longer consigned to a faraway, fog-encased island, but they are seen and valued and brought into the community and made whole. This was recognized immediately on that first December showing of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer back in 1964. At the end of the film, with Rudolph's neon snout cutting through the Christmas storm, Santa and the elves are tossing brightly wrapped gifts out of the sleigh to sleeping children below. And the public outcry and advocacy for the misfit toys was so strong that Rankin and Bass reshot the final scene for the 1965 special. And it is the misfit toys being delivered to waiting children below. And that has been the same conclusion now for more than six decades. For years, I have referred to our little congregation here as the island of misfit toys. And you must know 
that that is not a put down. It's not an insult. It's quite the opposite. It's a variation of the invitation given at our communion table that all are welcome. And all means all. And it's recognition that what we have going on here is unconventional. It's quirky. It's irreverent. But it works for those who can't seem to find their place in any other faith communities or those whose experience with church has been just a little less than ideal. In our congregation, live and online now, we have PhDs. We have high school dropouts. We have party animals and 12-steppers. We have up-and-comers and down-and-outers. We have Catholics and Baptists and Buddhists, straight, gay, true believers, genuine doubters. We have people worth millions and those who don't know how they will pay their rent this month. There are Bible thumpers and free lovers, ex-pastors and seminary quitters, dope smokers and teetotalers, the most gregarious extroverts and the most spooked introverts. We have right-wingers and left-hand turners, a few functioning alcoholics and a few defunct Episcopalians. We have trains with square wheels. We have a flying lion, birds that swim, boats that can't float, airplanes that can no longer fly, those who suffer from low self-esteem and far too many University of Alabama fans, but even they are welcome. <laughs> what holds us together is not dreams of utopia. It's not idealism. It's not even common politics or even common ground. It's a belief that Jesus did indeed come to create a redeemed humanity where the old order of things has passed away and all things could be made new. A humanity that would not be divided by ethnicity or religion or race or social or economic status or gender, but that all are one in Christ Jesus. And the all still gives room for the one to be their one unique offbeat selves. That's how all this got started. And it just got out of control. To be a church for people who didn't like church very much or even know what a church was, to be a home for those who don't have a home, who had given up on religion, maybe, but they still love Jesus. To jettison all of the trappings that had gotten in the way, to do no harm to those who had been harmed by religion. To skin faith down closer to the bone, to its basic elements, which are really quite simple. To love God. Love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Less judgment, more grace. And we don't always rise to that goal, and I have failed at it myself many, many times. But we press on Nonetheless, waving only one flag, rallying under one banner, and giving our allegiance to one cause, and that is the cross of Jesus of Nazareth, where we are taught self-giving, self-sacrificing love that feeds the hungry, that gives water to the thirsty, that sets the prisoner free, that takes in the outcast, that levels the field and gives every misfit a place to call home.